0: Welcome to the podcast. In this podcast episode, Dr. Angela Schill and I talk with Dr. Lua Hancock about what organizations can do to increase the number of women in leadership roles. Dr. Lua Hancock. It is a pleasure to be with you. You're joining us from Florida. I'm joined by Dr. Angela Schill. And today we're going to be exploring what organizations can do to increase the number of women in leadership roles. And Lua has a tremendous background in this area, both in terms of her own practitioner orientation and the work she does in coaching and working with organizations, but also in her research. So we're going to unpack all that mixed with some of her own background and experience as we uh, look at this topic today. As we get started, I wanted to share part of Lua's bio. Dr. Lua Hancock specializes in providing consulting in areas of leadership, youth empowerment and engagement, change management, conflict resolution, emergency planning and response assessment, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. She has worked with various Fortune 500 companies and higher education institutions from diverse sectors to facilitate towards values and goal creation, alignment, and success. Additionally, she works as a coach to industry leaders, assisting them with mindful, equitable, and impactful leadership. And that's just a really small nutshell of all the cool stuff you do. Uh, Lua, anything you would like to specifically highlight from your own professional background uh, before we dive on into the broader conversation?
1: Uh, yeah, so I'm a mom of uh, two, I'll add that, uh, one in college and one in high school, and we've been foster parents to a total of 13 kids total. Oh my five. goodness. So, yeah. I think the uh, you know I I'm very proud of my roles as a vice president at a university et cetera but I would say my proudest role is being a mom.
0: That is wonderful and what an incredible thing! Uh, Thirteen yeah. foster children, wow! Well, thank you so much for that introduction and that background. Um, and at this point, Angela, I'll hand it off to you and you can lead out.
2: Thanks, John. Lua, I i you've been you have so many. You have vast experience in a lot of areas. And I have a lot of questions. I'm intrigued by so much of it. And particularly today, we're talking about focusing on a discussion with you around women and how, well, organizations and how they can encourage women leadership, but also, and I'll let you decide how you want to start if you want to jump in and talk about organizations, but also what women can do to develop themselves as leaders. And if you have any strategies or, or um, actions that you recommend in that regard.
1: Yeah, so I'll just start by telling you a little bit about myself. I found that as I got my doctorate and I moved up in higher education, I more and more often found myself to be the only woman at tables, usually decision-making tables, and usually the youngest person and uh, the only woman. So it was an interesting dynamic, and I've experienced all kinds of things from that situation. Uh, And it really made me wonder about uh, women's leadership and how could we grow women's leadership. And so I really started with thinking about um, creating cohorts for women to be together, uh, to create spaces for them to talk about their professional development. I think regardless of your identity, those type of places can be very powerful. Just to have time, to make time, to think about yourself, your leadership, your competencies, what skills you want to work on. In higher education, I noticed there were particular skills that women often were not afforded, Uh, things like budget management, financial planning, construction, renovation, uh, things that I had been able to have access to um, that really allowed me to move up in higher education. And so how can we get some of those skill sets to women as well? And I've done this women's leadership work for a long time and talk about things like work-life integration, uh, kids and work, things that often uh, when women are the only ones at the table and it's offered to have a meeting late or early, they hate to be the one to say, yeah, like I have a school pickup, (laughs) Um, but that's the reality as well uh, for many of us as women leaders. I also found that I found it really hard to find a mentor. Who was a woman leader in higher education who had had kids either they didn't have kids they felt like that wasn't ever a thing they could do uh, or i was predominantly led by men so when i went to stetson university i partially went there because the president and the provost were women and i'd never had that experience of working for women leadership and um, when i got there and started doing some research i started to notice like yes it's great to do women's development spaces and i really believe in that work Additionally, are we just trying to develop, you know, ways that women can assimilate into a culture that wasn't created for them? And how do we start to look at the systemic work of, yes, women's development, leadership development, but women's leadership development, uh, if not worded or done correctly, uh, sounds a little bit like blaming the victim in this equity situation where... (laughs) women aren't at the table. So if we just lead them, if we just develop them up, they'll be ready to be at the table. And I actually don't believe in that at all. I think that although- it's
0: a, a Can of- I, can I add? Yeah. It's, it's a deficit perspective, right? It's a deficit perspective. Uh, and, and that is so problematic for so many reasons. And it's so, I don't think it's necessarily ill-intentioned in many cases, but it, it, it really just creates an environment where you, you can't empower women um and give them you know have the opportunities we got to build on the strengths and the uh what they bring to the table and uh, anyways I think we just so so under we so undermine (laughs) um the the opportunities uh for women and what they can contribute when we take that kind of a perspective
1: I completely agree I mean if you look at what especially today let's say post-covid um institutions are asking for uh transparency communication um, knowing the senior leadership, um, work-life balance and integration, uh, a, d- a deep understanding of transparency, authenticity, studies have shown that women leaders are more likely to bring that. So there's actually a business case for the strength that women are bringing to the market, um, as opposed to just thinking about the deficit of the things that they always need to, to build. And I've been pretty tired in my career of men being like, can I just coach you up on something? And I realized that. <laughs> actually they were coaching me to lead in ways that were not natural to my feminist perspective. And so once I just embraced that and I was like, you know what, I lead this way on purpose, uh, but I'm happy to have a discussion (laughs) with you. uh, That has been really empowering for me.
0: Can I, can I just say, because I don't know, Angela, you can speak to this, um, but I I feel like, at least I certainly try not to be like the typical, like masculine, toxic masculinity type of male leader. And I, I get, I have leaders, male leaders coaching me, you know, and I feel a lot the same way. And it really ticks me off. And I know if I feel that way as a man being coached by a man that way, it must really tick off a woman being coached by a man that
1: way. Well, you know, I mean, we could go extreme. We could talk about the times I've been at a table where people have said like, oh, honey, higher ed made that decision before you were born and all those moments. But mm. I think most of them are unintentional, which is that the, belief is that as you mature in your leadership style, you will get potentially more patriarchal or more separated between your life and work or harder line about. And that just has not been what's worked for me. I have led teams that have had very, very high retention of staff, satisfaction of staff, goal attainment. And I believe it's because of my feminist leadership style. Yeah. Yeah, And I think,
2: I mean, just listening to this, I don't know that it's so much that women need training. I think that organizations need training. And so <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's where my question is for you in terms of what are some organizational structures and mechanisms that, I mean, you, you've mentioned studies, um, research that maybe supports this too, but what can organizations do to foster that shift in leadership? So not just trying to get women to, match some patriarchal standard of leadership, but what can organizations do to appreciate the value of the kind of leadership that you've done that's been so successful? How can we integrate that and appreciate all forms of leadership that are effective?
1: Yeah, well, I'll tell you where I realized how systemic it was, and then I'll give you some ideas of what we could do about it. I studied the 72 colleges and universities in the state of Florida, and I looked at their leadership boards, their cabinets, and I determined uh, where, you know, where were the sex differences in men and women, what roles were they playing. And one thing that I noticed, which is nationally a trend, and it is as well here in Florida, there's much more equity at community colleges and the college state system than there was in private schools. And I've worked in private schools my whole life. And um, so for example, right now in the state of Florida is 9% women presidents in the state of Florida for private institutions. So I was like, how can community colleges do this? They have, you know, and, and private schools can't. So there's something there. Then I also started reading about what's called the pipeline myth, which is this belief that there just aren't women in the pipeline, which is actually not true as well. And higher education presence these days predominantly come from the provost role, which is pretty gender equitable, actually, and from outside of higher education more often, which there's plenty of women leaders in the market as well. So once I got rid of kind of these myths of then really it was the institution. What is the institution going to do about this? So the thing that I always recommend institutions first is do you even know your data? do you know the gender equity and parity within your organizations or do you match what's happening in the market and if you do that's okay then let's strategize how to move on so for example i would be remiss if i didn't mention like so right now in higher education for every white male dollar that's made uh white women are making 81 cents on the dollar even in the same positions um so there is a pay equity issue as well And women Mm -hmm. of color are making 67 cents on the dollar. So the intersectionality issue is even worse. Men of color are making less than white women in higher education leadership as well. So there's lots of issues here. Mm -hmm. But to focus on the woman issue, like do you even know your data? Are the salary, is there salary equity based on position and market? Um, Is there a difference in the ability for men and women faculty to get tenure and promotion? Is there a difference in the way that they're evaluated in the classroom by students? Is there built-in bias? And if there is, then how do we address it? But I can't tell you the amount of organizations I work with who don't even know their own data. So that's where we would start.
2: That sounds, I mean, to me, thinking about that, that sounds overwhelming, but so necessary to, to know your own data, to know what's going on.
1: Yeah. And the good thing is it wouldn't take 30 minutes for you to take your data and sort it in certain ways that you already have in your system. And then if you decide that you're going to make a difference uh, about it. So, for example, if there's a woman president at an organization, the cabinet is much more likely to have pay equity. So why is that? I mean, a woman president is aware of it. So some of it is just mindfulness. Like, am I aware? Okay, now that I'm aware, what am I going to do with the data that I've found? Uh, one of the biggest things that I recommend is secession planning. Institutions overall are not great at secession planning. A uh, secession planning can be an inclusion initiative. Plus, it's so smart for the organization. It's just an underutilized strategy. But we find that um, women are much less likely to get their first vice presidency at a different institution. Men can interview at a different institution, their first vice presidency, and be considered but women more likely are to be hired as a vice president if they already were a vice president. So as institutions, we should be looking to promote within, especially in areas where there's so little women, like CFOs, IT directors, athletic directors. It's like shocking how few women are in those spaces. And Mm -hmm. then you have some of the opposite, library deans or women, deans of nursing or women, um, diversity and inclusion people. Predominantly women. In the state of Florida, it's like 80-something percent. Wow. So how can we make sure that we're also giving access to all different types of areas? Uh, you know, to that. And if you're gonna train women on things like um uh, business and finance, which is fine, maybe we have some of those gaps. Are we also training men or full cabinets on things like conflict resolution, (laughs) communication strategy? Have you ever, could you imagine if we were like, we're going to have a men's leadership workshop and we're going to focus on relationship building, conflict resolution? Why not? Like, why would we not do that? But it sounds funny. Like, it sounds hilarious. Yeah. So I propose this to cabinets sometimes because you know what women want? They want to work on a joyful cabinet. If you ask them, they believe that they can still have joy and work. Whereas sometimes men will say, well, I kind of have to compromise because work is work. Women are like, Mm-mm, no, I'm not going to compromise. So it's our responsibility to make joyful, collaborative, workplaces, not places where people are going to eat each other. And then you tell women, well, you just have to get used to that if you're going to be in higher education. No, that's not true. It's our responsibility to create cultures that women want to be promoted within.
0: I'm just imagining the room where you're you're (laughs) recommending to the cabinet of like mostly men about going through these trainings. I'm just imagining their faces. I do it. How many would react to that? You know,
1: I do it. I said, and I tie it again back to the market. The students, faculty, and staff are asking for these type of organizations. So the best way to do it is to create a representative cabinet that looks like your student constituency. Mm -hmm. And students going to colleges are more diverse than they've ever been. And cabinets look about the same. So, and don't even get me started on boards. So this is our, that's one thing also is looking at at How do we create those, those cultures, um, So that people think like, man, I really do want to be an advancement and then obviously people can nominate people, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's really important, not just to mentor but to full out nominate to say hey, this person would be great for this and let me tell you why. Um, And if we know that, for example, women are less likely to get hired at the cabinet level at another institution, then just as an equity imperative it's our responsibility to nominate them more frequently.
2: Just listening to you, I'm thinking about, I just heard someone talking about women needing mentors, but even more than that, sponsors, sponsorship, yeah. and how the difference is, is that you've got somebody speaking for you and you're not at the table. And I feel like that's what you're doing on this grand scale. What do you think about that? I, I have two questions. One about that sponsorship piece, but also how do you get that? I think part of that comes like the role of a sponsor is maybe, or the impact of that is shifting culture. A little bit and how do you how do you talk to people who if if those I won't bring boards up but if you have these different leadership that you're speaking with and trying to help see this new way of how to operate how do you get through how, what what are the steps is it just you know showing them the numbers showing them that this is a wise business decision or Sorry, that's a loaded question, but
1: (laughs) I think, yes, showing them that there's, I mean, obviously in business, the WIFM, right? Like what's in it for me? Like, why do they care? Why are they going to care about it? Besides just this uh, kind of like human rights space or, you know, civil activism space. So there is a business case. I would say also, though, it's been a bit disheartening. I have offered to universities to do this work pro bono. Like I will come in and like work with you and think about what this women equity looks like. And many of them have not taken me up on it. Higher ed right now is tough. It's a tough time to be a leader in higher education. The national belief in the value of higher education is decreased. Internal fighting is up. the Votes of no confidence are up. Like it is a tough place to be right now. And I totally respect that. So I think it's mostly like a time and prioritization issue. So what I'm trying to do right now in Florida, for example, although I presented to the presidents, I presented all the presidents of the community colleges, uh, it's been hard to get in with the private colleges and universities, which unfortunately are traditionally bound in more elitism, which is why I think there is less gender equity and racial equity in those spaces. Um, So I went and met with the community college president, so many strong, amazing women who were super interested in this data and actually have a lot of equity on their campus already. Um, but it's been hard to break through those spaces. So I've actually decided instead to talk predominantly to HR people and CDOs instead. They are the people on the ground doing the work. And by the way, they're predominantly women. So I think that's where we're going to try to start, you know, to make some inroads. Yeah. From your
2: perspective, doing this work, how do you, you know, I, I hear a little bit of like I feel disheartened listening to that, that it's hard to get into those spaces where, especially if there's elitism going on and, and that that then perpetuates these systems that don't work for the actual constituents, the students that are there. Um, how have you, what are some the, I don't know if it's research that you've done or read or how do you stay motivated? And obviously you've talked about, you've shifted, you've found the place where people are listening and making those changes. Um, do you have any stories about what that's looked like success wise or kind of what's kept you motivated
1: and and where you find that? Yeah. So equity work is about the long haul. You know, I mean, there isn't in my lifetime, I won't see the equity that I desire necessarily. Um, But there are inroads that we can make. And I think data does speak to higher education. I mean, it's a place of education. So does research and data speak to them potentially? And then, You know, there are times where like equity is everyone's work, but sometimes on cabinets, they don't know what that means. So being able to articulate to people like equity is where you do it at home. So are there policies in the way that we do leave? or financial payout that are not benefiting women or inequitably benefiting women, well, let's adjust those. Um, you know, So I really, where I find uh, real motivation in my work is I'm able to work with individual leaders and help them realize what equity looks like in their job. People who really have the will, but they don't know, like, give me the operations of that. Like, what yeah. would that look like if I were to actually you know, do this work internal to my area? What would that look like as a dean of the college and school? Well, as a dean, it would be knowing the racial and gender biases that are built into the student, you know, evaluation system and the tenure and promotion system. Do you have the ability to pause tenure clocks? Um, Pausing tenure clocks benefits women. It causes a level of equity, um, and it doesn't have to be that complicated of an issue, but As long as there is gender inequity in the way that we raise our children, then pausing tender clocks and things like that are going to be beneficial in certain ways. So I'm motivated when I talk to people who are like, yeah, I want to do that more and more these days. Although I do love to do the individual women's leadership work and I love to coach women who underestimate their power and their choice and just look at their stuff and remind them how good and how ready they are and give them the language to talk to this you know, market, but mostly these days I'm super motivated by the systemic work because it's what I think is going to make the change over time. Um, And I'm motivated by like, you know, I raised boys in my own house who, uh, you know, I've been able to influence in certain ways to be aware of equity issues around them, which to me is extremely important because I am a mother of school children in Florida where they have taken things out of the curriculum, where they have not allowed for certain rights for students. And they've literally removed, you know, uh, African American Studies AP courses and things. So I take a lot of uh, pride in helping my students. Uh, students and my own kids to have raised awareness kind of of what what is happening in the world and then what they individually can do about it oh, can cool. I note
0: a couple things first we're in utah and i often think things are a bit crazy here um <laughs> and then i and then i remind myself oh but at least we're not florida <laughs> <laughs> um you know there's like there's it's a crazy time shall i just say um it's it it's really yeah. a challenging time to be talking about these issues um in any space but particularly in a higher ed space uh it's it's challenging now you you talked about the systemic work and maybe to just term it a different way you know we have the disparate treatment versus the disparate impact types of discrimination and issues equity issues that um lots of people face right different marginalized populations women of color women generally right um And, you know, a lot of times you bring up these types of issues and people will say, well, no, I'm not sexist. No, I'm not this or that or the other. Uh, And that may be true from the disparate treatment perspective of like purposeful, intentional discrimination of someone based on their sex, right? Um, But what happens in most organizations is there's all sorts of disparate treatment uh, or sorry, disparate impact types of discrimination that occur and that's all this systemic stuff that's all the policies practices and procedures that are in place that disproportionately negatively impact women Um, and that's the stuff that has to be dismantled and it's it's really hard especially when you have people you know especially men often who when these things come up they say well no I'm not sexist no like that's not what we're doing here Um, but it it requires you to like be willing to take a step back and actually look at it with a different set of lenses I think Uh, Any thoughts on how we can help that that systemic work along and and are there ways of framing it up that are going to be, I don't know, more palatable (laughs) to to men in power?
1: Well, I do agree with you. I don't think the majority of people sitting in power are looking to create inequitable systems or be biased against anybody. That has not been my experience. I think that um, though, when you look at your data, it will tell you specific things. And this is student data as well. I mean, of course you're trying to create a system where all students feel like they belong and then you pull the data and certain groups don't feel that way. That's disheartening. I mean, when you've done this as your work, you feel, you know, so I'm trying to meet leaders right where they are. Like there's no judgment zone, you know, but it is interesting. I don't want this to be the motivator, but I think right now there's also a risk mitigation motivator happening in higher education. You know, there's been some of these kind of class action level lawsuits by groups of faculty and staff, women at institutions recently who have said, like, listen, we've been bringing up gender equity pay for 20 years and it hasn't changed. I don't want to sue my own institution, but like, what am I going to do? And I don't, I feel for those leaders. Do I think that president or board is sitting there saying like, oh, let's have, you know, let's pay women. Like, no, but they're also not paying attention enough, like you said, to all of these factors and levers that they can adjust, um, And it takes really smart work and it takes teams of work. It takes HR professionals, inclusion professionals and faculty leadership professionals sitting around in a non, as much as possible, emotional way. So you gotta do your own work. You gotta do your own inclusion work to figure out why is all this stuff like making me feel a certain type of way. And then to say, okay, what would it be like if we moved this one measure over time? What would it take? And could we do that over a six month period? So one of the things I think that, we can do as leaders is really help the institution break it down and make it feel manageable. Like that's really, I mean, um, and uh, so, and, and create goals that they're really, really proud of, um, you know, that they can say, yeah, we could do these little few things over time. Um, most of it's awareness. I mean, I think in our own journey and in university journeys, it's just awareness. Are we even aware of what's happening? And then what one step would we take today? to be able to make a, a small change. Uh, I do talk to boards though, when I do talk to them, I do talk to them about the risk issue. I mean, there is a real risk issue. Um, yeah. And you don't want to set yourself up for that um, to be known as the place that's not equitable or whatever. Instead, just do your due diligence in advance.
0: Can I, can I also ask about real doing the real work versus the performative work? Mm. Um, so like most organizations, most institutions nowadays have a chief diversity officer or whatever term they use for that position. Um, we do it at our university as well. Um, we have a very robust inclusion plan, a university-wide inclusion plan. Last time I looked, I think it had like 80 different categories with mm-hmm. sub points and like objectives and like very, very thorough, right? So that's all wonderful. And I'm all for aspirational goals and I'm all for reaching for the stars. But then there's also this, you know, this point where people are looking at that and they're a little disillusioned and they're thinking, okay, we have this document. Okay. We have this person who's in this position, but what's really happening. What's actually, yeah. what changes are actually happening and do we see any movement? And that's where it's a much bigger question. Yeah. Right. And, and so I, again, I want aspirational goals. I want to start, the. we got to start somewhere. And so I want to start the process of doing a little bit To make things better. Uh, But how do you also do that while also not just coming across as just it's a PR thing or it's a performative uh, action?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, there's been studies on the real impacts of CDOs. Man, I mean, what a tough job right now, again. And in higher education, you know, people have been changing their titles. And I mean, here in Florida, like I said, it's a mess. Um, I guess what, so I'll give you a a story here that was really impactful to me. So the day after the last presidential election, and regardless how you feel about the outcome, you know, when Trump was elected, I had faculty and staff come in my office and say, like, what do I do? I don't agree with some of what's happening in our nation, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. Should I advise a club or organization in the Multicultural Student Council, or should I do like GLBT work? And I was like, I don't know, do you have any experience with that? Like, I'm not sure. Um, But what I I think the best thing they can do is to go home and do the quiet, hard inclusion work themselves. If you're a chemistry faculty member, what does that look like to make sure that there is equity and access and ability to graduate for the students who are in your program right now? what does that mean for the faculty who are in your program, for the curriculum design, for the authors that you're choosing to use and highlight, for your own knowledge, for your own networks, for how diverse your networks are. When we hire, part of the reason why we hire people who look like us is totally unintentional. It's because I post on my Facebook. And if my Facebook is predominantly people who look like me, then that's who are going to know about the job. So it's my responsibility to professionally diversify my network. And that is not this doesn't have to be billboard work. This is like, I'm gonna go home and do the daily work to try to bring equity leadership, inclusive leadership into my job. And uh, that's where I think we actually make the most change. It's not someone else's job, it's not the CDO's job. Now the cabinet has to do something systemically, but where I found the work happened is the lone chemistry chair sitting in their office, looking at the data figuring out how if we have expanded access to students nationally, which we have, and faculty and staff have gotten more diverse, which is great. I'm proud of this country that there's more students with accessibility potentially issues historically who are on campuses. There's more first generation college students. There's more women. There's more students of color. What we haven't quite figured out is how to translate that into an end successful, like access is is happening, which is great. But then how do do we do with that? And that is individual people in their departments doing non-sexy hard work to just try to move it. That's what I think is going to really make the difference, honestly, uh, in this work is um, making it a part of what we do. Not something I have to talk about or whatever, but just my responsible job like just how I do my work.
0: Embedding it into everything we do. Yeah. 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 Well, Lua, this has just been a great conversation. I know the time we're going to have to let you go here in a minute, but before we wrap things up, I just wanted to give you a chance to share with the audience, how they can connect with you, find out more about the good work that you're doing, and then give us a final word on the topic for today. Sure.
1: Uh, So I'm easy to find on LinkedIn, Lua Hancock, there aren't a lot of us, so I'm easy to find. And uh, my uh, website is luacoach.com, L-U-A-C-O-A-C-H. So feel free to access me there. And I'm happy to do uh, a free first-time coaching conversation and evaluation with anybody. Um, and, uh, you know, I would say that um, I think that um, if you are someone who's listening to this, who's in a position of power, Um, look at your data, but also just sit down and have genuine conversations. What does it feel like for other people in your organization? What's happening? And how do we create the time? The inertia of our day as leaders, the inertia of our life is not going to create time for us for the big work like this. So how do we create a time and begin to look at it systemically. Um, I believe that we have all the tools intellectually, uh, spiritually, all of our capacities as leaders to make this happen. It's just a matter of prioritization, sitting above it and saying, Yeah, this is something I really want to do. I've been so inspired by the women leaders in my life and in higher education and the women of color in my own community who have uh, just been stalwart supporters of education. So Um, keep yourself fueled up. It's a long ride.
0: Lua, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. I encourage the audience to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Lua can do for you. And on behalf of Angela and I, again, uh, we appreciate everyone's work in this space. We hope everyone has a wonderful week, that they can stay healthy and safe, and we'll see you again soon.